Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 56. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on January 19th, 2022, in a secure, undisclosed location in Midtown Manhattan. This episode pairs well with the first two in the Jamestown and the Manhattan series. So if you have not listened to them recently, you might want to go back and do that. And of course, those of you following along in real time or close to it will be up to date. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. The best way to support what we are doing here is to tell your friends, either the old-fashioned way or on your social propaganda website of choice, or write a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, but especially just tell your friends. That means the most by a long shot. Last week, we looked at the first contact between the Jamestown settlers and the local indigenous peoples. It did not go well, either at the original landing place at Virginia Beach or at Paspahegg, now called Jamestown, a few weeks later. Despite a clear intention to maintain good relations with the Indians of the region, the English did not understand three important things. First, that the tribes of the region had institutional and actual memory of encounters with both Spanish and English would-be settlers, and were none too happy about how those had gone. Second, the tribes at the mouth of the Chesapeake were increasingly, but not entirely, under the sway of the Powhatan Confederacy. Wahoon Sunacock, whom we refer to as Powhatan for a bunch of reasons discussed a couple episodes back, had built his confederation not only for his own aggrandizement and to defend against encroaching Iroquoian and Siouan tribes at the periphery of his empire, but also to prepare for the return of Europeans. His kinsman and military leader, Opa Kankanaw, had, probably, spent time among the Spanish and would have been well aware of their practice of pitting tribes against each other. Consolidation of the tribes in the region would reduce the ability of returning Europeans to divide and rule. The third thing that the English did not understand was that the Powhatan Confederacy was, in the words of David Price, a tightly run, martially adept empire. Price's description of the Powhatan Confederacy's administration is worth quoting. Powhatan collected steep tributes from the conquered tribes. Fully 80% of all that they grew, caught, or made from grain and fish to pelts and pearls. The tributes went directly to his storehouses and temples. His empire in 1607 covered all of present-day eastern Virginia, spreading from the south bank of the Potomac River down to an approximation of the modern Virginia-North Carolina line. Westward, the border corresponded more or less with today's Interstate 95, reaching the present sites of Richmond and Fredericksburg. The Algonquin name for this territory was Senecomica. There was no mystery to his success as a conqueror, under Powhatan, males of the empire were trained from early childhood to be hunters and warriors. Boys began training with bows and arrows by the age of six. Mothers did not give their young sons food in the morning until the boys succeeded at the morning's target practice. When Powhatan judged the time right for action, 
His men executed it with precision and without mercy. In other words, this is Sparta! I crack me up. I kill me. <laughs> Digressing slightly, I wonder if the Powhatan tribute was actually 80%. That suggests that the contributing tribes had the capacity to produce five times their actual caloric requirements, which seems implausible to me, even under the threat of reprisals. Now, it is true that Powhatan would redistribute food out of his granaries to tribes that needed it. So maybe this was an early and successful proto-communist model. But it is more likely, it seems to me, that the subject tribes hid a lot of their production. Without writing, any reporting system would have been pretty inefficient, so Confederacy tax collectors would have had a difficult time tracking down the scoff laws. Of course, in late May 1607, when the barely established settlement had fended off a major attack from five united tribes, the English at Jamestown had not yet heard of Powhatan or Opakankanaw. Captain Newport had gone upstream with John Smith and 20 or so other men to explore, and it would be on that expedition that the English would get their first inkling of the powerful organization that confronted them. Newport and his men took the shallop up the James on May 21st, covering 18 miles by the end of the first day. The next morning, they encountered five or six Indians in a canoe and asked them, presumably by signs, where the river went. Archer, the same fellow shot through the hands on the beach that first night, showed them how to use a pen on paper and asked them to draw a map. They did, and it appeared to show falls farther up the river, then mountains, so far so good, and then the Pacific Ocean. Mountains being a promising location for valuable minerals and an ocean being a possible middle passage to Asia, this was very exciting news. Unfortunately, it was, at the very best, reductionist, not unlike that famous New Yorker cover from March 1976. Only less snooty. Google New Yorker cover map of America if you've never seen it. On May 23rd, the shallop reached the lands of the Arahatics. The canoeing Indians had alerted them, and they graciously received the English, serving a feast of venison, mulberries, corn, beans, and cakes. They also learned for the first time of a paramount chief, the Mamanatoic in the original Algonquin. Not going to be pronouncing that word again either. Indeed, every chief they had met so far was beholden to the big chief, Powhatan. The friendly Arahatics were just the first to spill the beans. As Price put it, the English were not able to understand the significance of what they had been told, fortunately, for their dinnertime digestion. As they were eating, in fact, another chief arrived, Parahunt, son of the paramount chief Powhatan. Not speaking the language, the English confused him for the paramount chief himself, and Newport showered him with gifts, including knives, shears, and various glass objets. Parahunt was supposedly delighted, and the English thought they had won over the most important native leader. Oops. Over the next couple of days, Newport and his shallop headed upriver, as far as the fall line at today's Richmond, and then turned around and headed back downstream. They met the Arahatics again, who assigned a man named Naros, the local chief's brother-in-law, to serve as their guide. 
He taught them a few Algonquin words and in principle was to accompany them back down the river to Jamestown. All seemed well until Nero seemingly changed his mind and took his leave with a flourish of apologies. None of this seemed terribly peculiar to Newport, but Smith, in retrospect, claimed he smelled a rat and began agitating for a return to Jamestown. Newport had wanted to go back up river above the fall line, but the wind turned against that, and rather than fight the wind, they continued downstream. They arrived at Jamestown just after the big attack described at the end of the last episode. For Smith, this confirmed his worst fears. Powhatan must have ordered the attack, and Nara stepped away because he did not want to be in the custody of the English when they learned of it. That Smith was apparently correct in his wariness did nothing to endear him to Wingfield and his allies who agitated for Smith to return to England with Newport and the two bigger ships. The Reverend Hunt again sided with Smith, as did Newport, who argued forcefully for unity. After some grumpy debate, Smith was at last permitted to take his oath of office and assumed his designated seat on the colony's council. Piecemeal attacks continued over the next few days. A lone Englishman was shot by Indians hiding in the tall grass when he ventured outside the new palisade for a bio-break, and tensions remained high. Then a couple of unarmed Indians appeared at the entrance professing friendship, and Newport and Wingfield greeted them. Newport recognized that one of them was the Indian from the group in the canoe, the one who had drawn the map at Archer's behest, and they were invited in. They gave the English a tutorial on the local tribal landscape. Their enemies, the two said, were the Pespaheg, the Wayanak, the Appomattox, the Kiskiak, and the Keokanahanic, or something like that, the five tribes who had been behind the big attack on the settlement when Newport and Smith were gallivanting upriver. Their friends, according to these two, were the Arahatic, the Pamunkey, the Mataponi, and the Yautanund. This was not good news, because the five hostile tribes were close to Jamestown. The English had settled on Pespaheg land, and the supposedly friendly tribes were the farthest away. In all likelihood, some of this division between friend and foe had something to do with the strength of their affiliation with the Powhatan Confederacy. Or maybe it merely meant that proximity to the English was itself the basis for hostility to them. On the way out, the two Indians made the fairly obvious suggestion that the English cut down the tall grass at the perimeter of their fort, since that was where the Indians would hide in ambush. As Price put it, that Wingfield needed the suggestion in the first place was ample testimony that he was ill-equipped to deal with the near-crisis situation. Newport and his ships and mariners left for England on June 22nd, carrying with them pre-approved letters from the colonists, a report for the council back in London, and a hold full of clabbered cut by the colonists in a first attempt to return a profit for the enterprise. The correspondence was all very positive, which was well and good even if not entirely true, because the colony would desperately need reinforcement and resupply. The clabbered was more problematic, not because it wouldn't be valuable. Wood for building was in short supply in England, but because it had distracted the colonists from doing much more than putting up the palisade and a very few buildings. Most of them were still living in tents. No fields had been cleared, and no crops had been planted beyond 
small gardens and test plots. Then a very weird thing happened. By and large, the colonists stopped working. Sort of a 17th century great resignation. Newport sailors had been doing a fairly large proportion of the actual work, and now they were gone. At least half the colonists left behind were gentlemen from a very stratified society. And spending the day, every day, at labor was not something they were inclined to do. The extent of the gentlemanly resistance to work as conditions in Jamestown deteriorated has puzzled historians for centuries. You'd think if you were starving to death, you might get off your tuchus and get to work. Anyway, it's a topic to which we shall return. There's no question that at Newport's departure, Jamestown did not have enough food to ensure its survival until his return, which might easily take six months. Daily rations per man were a half pint of barley and a half pint of wheat, infused with a protein in the worms that had infested the grain. The water had gone bad. The colonists had been drinking straight from the James, but in the Hot summer months, the water level fell, and salt moved upstream with each tide, turning it brackish. Foolishly, they had not dug a well, or looked for open springs on the mainland. By August, weakened from malnutrition, salt poisoning, mosquito-borne disease from the nearby swamps, and continued sporadic Indian attacks, the colonists began to die in droves, from the journal of George Percy. The 6th of August, there died John Aspie of the bloody flux. The ninth day died George Flower of the swelling. The 10th day died William Brewster, gentleman of a wound given by the savages and was buried on the 11th day. The 14th day, Jerome Alacock, ancient, died of a wound. The same day, Francis Midwinter, Edward Morris Corporal died suddenly. The 15th day there died Edward Brown and Stephen Galthrop. The 16th day there died Thomas Gower, gentleman. The 17th day there died Thomas Mounslick. The 18th day there died Robert Pennington and John Martin, gentlemen. The 19th day died Drew Pigays, gentlemen. John Smith and John Ratcliffe both got very sick during this stretch, but they recovered. At the worst moment, there were as few as five able-bodied men to stand guard and bury the dead. But Edward Maria Wingfield never got sick. John Smith thought he knew why. And then the most grievous loss of all. The wise and humane Bartholomew Gosnell died on August 22nd. Gosnold had been Wingfield's most respected supporter. So in addition to losing his judgment and leadership, the death of the man who gave Martha's Vineyard its name would upset the political dynamic among the desperate colonists. Smith accused Wingfield of keeping a separate store of food for himself, including beef, eggs, oatmeal, and wine. He and Ratcliffe formed a political alliance, and by September 10th had whipped the votes on the council necessary to replace Wingfield with Ratcliffe. Smith was not particularly fond of Ratcliffe. Smith mocked him in his memoir, but had come to believe that anybody would be better than Wingfield. 
Wingfield was not merely relieved, he was confined to the Discovery, the last remaining ship. And Smith was not done with him. King James had granted the Virginia Company the authority to conduct civil and criminal cases in Virginia. And so Smith sued Wingfield for slander over Wingfield's accusation that Smith had fomented mutiny during the Atlantic crossing. A jury of 12 angry men, there would be no Henry Fonda for Wingfield, found for Smith and awarded him 200 pounds in damages. Wingfield didn't have it on him, so he turned over his private food stocks and other supplies to Smith, who donated them for general use by the rest of the colony. According to his own account, Smith took over the day-to-day management of the settlement, driving the construction of housing and preparing plots for agriculture. With close to half the colonists dead by September, there was a very good chance that only a handful would survive by November, when Newport had promised to return with more supplies. In the event, Newport wouldn't get back until January, so the situation was even more dire than the survivors realized. But then a weird thing happened. The Indians suspended their attacks and started trading food from their fall harvest for knives, hatchets, and luxury goods. The colonists began to recover their strength, and the dying slowed down. This was not altruism, and in retrospect seems to have been a fatal miscalculation on Powhatan's part. No doubt he had been getting intelligence reports that the colonists were burying people, but the paramount chief probably did not understand how much trouble the English were in. Powhatan must have thought it more important to get English tools and weapons— which his confederacy had no capacity to make themselves, and so he traded food for them. Had Powhatan kept his economic sanctions in force and pinned the English inside their palisade, starvation and his warriors could have easily wiped out the few remaining settlers long before Newport returned. The renewed trade did not solve the food shortage. It merely brought the colonists back from the brink, As the fall wore on, Ratcliffe dispatched Smith to travel to the town of the Kecketons at the mouth of the James and trade for food in larger quantities. The bargaining was tough and full of bluff and bluster. The Kecketons, for their part, had learned a contempt for the English, who could not even feed themselves and were therefore beneath respect. Smith understood that he would not get anywhere in the negotiating unless he changed the psychology of the encounter. He therefore made a ridiculously one-sided demand, a liberally distributed trinkets like glass beads to the children, and retired to his boat. Now to Price's account. The next day, the Kecketon's attitude had changed. Now, no less desirous of our commodities than we of their corn. Smith and his men traded with them for fish, oysters, bread, and venison. The natives bartered so eagerly that he wished he had brought more men in a larger vessel. The food from the Kecketons extended the colony's supplies, and the mission had been so successful that on November 9th, Ratcliffe dispatched Smith again, this time with both the shallop and the discovery, to trade upriver. Over the next few weeks, Smith traveled to the villages along the Chickahominy River, where he traded skillfully for food, rather than Buy all he could from the first villages he came to, he bought only a little bit, bargaining hard as he went. Over the course of a month, he made at least two such trips, 
returning with a shallop full of food each time. Smith also began to learn Algonquin, which would come in handy. December came and Newport had not returned. Again, however, the surviving colonists were bailed out. Migratory waterfowl, geese and ducks mostly, came to the area in great numbers, and even the English were able to hunt enough of them to eat well. The caloric situation much improved, at least for the time being. Smith decided to pick up the exploration of the region where Newport had left off. In early December, he again headed upriver with a shallop and nine men. So would begin the most famous story in early English North America. The shallop headed some 50 miles up the Chickahominy River, at least 10 miles past the last Algonquin village, a place named Apacant. At a narrows, the way was blocked by a fallen tree, so Smith turned the shallop around and sailed back to Apacant. There he hired two Indian guides and a canoe and took two men with him, Thomas Emery and John Robinson, to sail above the fallen tree and ordered the remaining seven men to stay on the shallop at all times. This they did not do. Not long after the canoe with Smith, Emery, Robinson, and the two guides had paddled away, the men on the shallop spotted several very attractive local women on the shore. Some version of 17th century flirtation, maybe just wolf whistles for all we know, ensued, and the women seemed to return the admiration. The men came ashore, only to be surprised by a contingent of warriors. You cannot see my shocked face. The women had done their job quite deliberately, luring the English into the trap. Six of the seven men made it back to the shallop. The last, a laborer named George Cason, fell into Indian hands. Here's how David Price describes what happened next. It's gruesome. So if you have little kids in the car as you are listening, this might be a good moment to pause the podcast. I'll wait a couple of beats. But um, but um, but um, quote. After seizing Cason, the natives stripped him of his clothes and tied him to a pair of stakes. The full purpose of what was about to happen to him is unclear. By one account, the natives were using Cason to placate their god. By another, the natives were punishing Cason as an enemy trespasser. Of course, the two possibilities were not mutually exclusive. Fate or in fairness, these warriors, had written a most unhappy ending to Cason's life story. The natives prepared a large fire behind his bound and naked body. Then a man grasped his hands and used muscle shells to cut off joint after joint, making his way through Cason's fingers, tossing the pieces into the flames. That accomplished, the man used shells and reeds to detach the skin from Cason's face and the rest of his head. Cason's belly was next, as the men sliced it open, pulled out his bowels, and cast those onto the fire. Finally, the natives burned Cason to the stake, through to his bones. Poor George. You may fairly wonder how it is we know that this happened. Well, the story appears in several of the Jamestown accounts, including those of Smith and Strachey, who learned of it in subsequent conversations 
with local Indians. Of course, none of this was yet known to Smith, who had stopped to eat on the shore a couple of miles upriver of the fallen tree. According to Smith's subsequent account, which is like all subsequent accounts, at least a little self-serving, and knowing Smith, a lot self-serving, he used the opportunity to explore a bit on foot and perhaps shoot some birds. He took one of the guides with him and left the other guide and the two English on the bank of the river with instructions to fire off a warning shot if hostile Indians approached. Within 15 minutes, he heard a distant cry from his men, but no distress signal. His guide looked startled and urged Smith to run. Suddenly, an arrow hit Smith in the right thigh. He fired his pistol at one of the Indians who had suddenly emerged, and they ran off. But in the time he took to reload, a swarm of Indians appeared. Smith did exactly the thing that you would expect— He grabbed the hapless guide, put the gun to his head, used the Indian as a human shield, and started backing up in the direction of the landing place. Sadly for Smith, it was not long before he stepped waist-deep into a swampy mire, and he was trapped. His guide, who apparently harbored no ill will at having been used as a shield, or maybe just hoped to save his own skin, shouted out that Smith was a leader, which under local practice meant that he should be captured alive rather than killed. The approaching warriors promised that Smith would be spared, even though the other two English had already been killed. Immobilized in the muck, Smith surrendered. The warriors hauled him out of the swamp and presented him to their leader, a tall Powhatan chief named Opa Kankanaw. If you are caught up on the prerequisites and have been paying attention you know that Opakankana was Powhatan's military chief and was probably Paquiquinio Don Luis, the same man who had lived among the Spanish for 10 years and murdered the Spanish Jesuits who had brought him home almost 37 years before. In other words, shiz just got real. As attentive listeners know, at only 27 years of age, Smith had gotten himself out of jams before. In this case, he pulled a compass from his pocket and gave it to Opakankanaw. According to Smith's later account, much the Indians marveled at the playing of the fly and needle, which they could see so plainly and yet not touch because of the glass that covered them. But when he demonstrated that globe-like jewel, the roundness of the earth, the skies, the sphere of the sun, moon, and stars, and how the sun did chase the night round about the world continually, the greatness of the land and sea, the diversity of nations, variety of complexions, and how we were to them the antipodes, and many other such like matters, they all stood amazed with admiration. Uh, maybe not. Far more likely, Smith's Algonquin was not nearly good enough to convey all that to the rank-and-file warriors. They may well have been impressed by the compass as an alien device, but Opakankanaw would have known all that Smith was trying to convey, and also certainly seen a compass before, even if years ago. Opakankanaw and the warriors took Smith to a hunting camp about six miles away, marching him in triumphantly, carrying the firearms, swords, and other personal effects of the English before them, trophies of war. 
The women and the children emerged, and then a group of warriors and priests formed a circle around Smith and Opakankana and danced an extended victory dance. James Horn, in his book on Opakankana, describes what happened next. Following the celebration, Smith feasted with Opakankana at his longhouse and afterward was taken to his lodging, where his cloak, garters, and laces were returned to him, along with his compass and notebook. Though closely guarded, he was treated well, and as they spent time together, Smith wrote of the growing affection between him and the chief. Opakankano apparently showed much delight in understanding the manner of our ships and quizzed the Englishman, and how many days will come hither any more English ships? He questioned him on how the English crossed the ocean, about the earth and skies, and white man's God. Then, in turn, he told Smith about his people's territories in the land beyond, including word of certain men clothed like me, meaning Smith, at a place called Okanahonan. Smith thought this might be a clue to the survival of some of the Roanoke colonists and was further excited when he heard Opakankana refer to a great turning of salt water just five days' journey away. This might have been, in Smith's mind, the Pacific Ocean. Smith asked to return to Jamestown, which Opakankana refused to permit. But the chief did agree to let Smith send a letter. Smith's argument was that the English might retaliate if they thought that he had perished, so he wanted to reassure them. Smith included in the note the news of his, quote, discoveries, or rather, rumors of discoveries, such as they were. Opakankana and his personal guard then took Smith on a long trek from village to village in the Chesapeake region, passing him from chief to chief in the Powhatan Confederacy. Smith believed that this tour of the empire was meant to exhibit the Confederacy's great power, perhaps to deter the English. But there was another purpose. An English ship had come to the region a few years before and kidnapped some Indians, and Opakankana wanted to know whether Smith was the culprit. He was cleared of that charge, and after a three-day ceremonial vetting by Powhatan priests, he was given a great feast and taken to Weowokamoko, the seat of the Powhatan Confederacy on the site of modern Richmond, Virginia. Smith would finally meet the paramount chief of the great Confederacy. We are now at the most famous moment of that legendary encounter. So let's conclude this episode with James Horn's description of Smith's description of what happened next. Chief Powhatan welcomed the English captain with good words and large platters of food and promised his friendship and to let him return to Jamestown within a few days. The Queen of Appomattox brought him water to wash his hands, and another woman brought him a bunch of feathers to dry them. Powhatan had been greatly pleased by his kinsman's Opakankanaw's account of what Smith had told him and questioned the Englishman similarly. In response to the question, why had the English come, Smith invented a story about having been in a fight with the Spaniards, our enemy, that had forced them to put into Chesapeake Bay to make repairs. Directed upriver by friendly Kekatons who lived at the mouth of the Powhatan River, that would be the James, they continued traveling in their pinnace, a small boat, to replenish their water casks. But their pinnace sprang a leak, so they had camped temporarily at Jamestown to wait for the return of their leader, 
Captain Christopher Newport, whom Smith described as his father. Powhatan inquired why they had gone farther upriver in their boat, to which Smith replied that they had journeyed to the other side of the main or landmass where there was salt water to revenge the slaying of Captain Newport's child by the Monacans, ancient enemies of the Powhatans. By pretending to have already discovered the back sea on a previous voyage, Smith was clearly hoping to learn more from the great chief. Following a lengthy silence, Powhatan spoke. He described countries beyond the falls and other regions beyond his own chiefdom. Five to eight days away to the west, the headwaters of the Powhatan River dashed amongst many stones and rocks during storms that caused the waters to become brackish. Powhatan told Smith that the Anchanachak people had slain Newport's son and that he, not the English, would avenge the killing. Upon the sea, a mighty nation called the Pocotronic, who did eat men, made war against the peoples at the top of the bay under his territories, where the year before they had slain a hundred warriors. They shaved their heads and had long hair tied in a knot and carried swords like pole axes. To the north of his lands, there were many kingdoms and a great river flowed into the bay that issued from mighty mountains betwixt the two seas, where men with short coats and sleeves to the elbows passed in ships. To the south, Powhatan spoke of people clothed at Okanahonan, the countries of the Mangoge a day and a half away, Chowanuk two days, and the province of Roanoke six. Near the southerly part of the back sea was a land called Unknown, where Powhatan said they have abundance of brass and walled houses like those of the English. I requited his discourse, Smith wrote, seeing what pride he had in his great and spacious domains, seeing that all he knew were under his territories. In turn, Smith spoke of the large territories of Europe that were subject to his great king, whose subject I was, of their countless ships and the manner of their wars. Captain Newport, he said, was the once king of all the waters. And at his greatness, Smith related haughtily, the chief admired and was not a little feared. Still quoting Horn, following a discussion involving Powhatan, his counselors, and priests, two great stones were placed in front of the chief, and Smith was forced to lay his head on them. An illustration drawn years later shows two warriors standing over him with clubs, ready to beat out his brains, and another standing by with a bow and arrow. A large figure in the foreground indicates one of the great men, while Powhatan is seated in the background with his wives and warriors around him. At the bottom of the image, a diminutive figure almost obscured by the caption would play a major role in Smith's fable. Pocahontas, the king's dearest daughter, he wrote years later, when no entreaty could prevail, got Smith's head in her arms and laid her own upon his to save him from death, whereat the emperor was contented he should live to make him hatchets and her bells and beads and copper. The chief then told Smith to abandon Jamestown and to live in a country called Kapahawasiki, a few miles down river. He promised to give me corn, venison, or what I wanted to feed us, Smith wrote. 
Hatchets and copper we should make him, and none should disturb us. Then he was released and permitted to return to Jamestown. Back to me. There it is. One learned author's reduction of Smith's account of his encounter with Powhatan and the saving of his life by Pocahontas. Suffice it to say, there's a lot more to this than meets the eye, and in the next episode, we will continue our journey with Smith and explore the historical controversy over that moment. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging, so please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter, and there's a Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.